0: Welcome to the Casual Journey Podcast. I got to say, I was doing research about you. You're an interesting guy because I didn't know that you were a professor of philosophy for so long. What got you into philosophy?
1: Well, you know, I was sort of interested also in political things. You know, I grew up where I, you know, I ended my high school years in the late 60s, went to college around that time when there was a lot of political turmoil going on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was, I was interested in it, but I wasn't sure what justice really was, whether capitalism had any redeeming qualities, whether socialism was where we should be heading, et cetera, yeah. all sorts of questions regarding, well, what, what form should democracy take? And I ended up discovering that I really needed to study philosophy if I wanted to, to resolve these questions. But uh, I think I've, I've worked out my thought. I, I think I've I put it out there. <clears throat> Not that all that many people have read it. Read a <laughs> lot of books in many libraries. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm I've taken up the task of uh, putting theory into practice. I like that. Which is a different enterprise because you know I can remain guided by principles, what justice is, but then you've got to deal with the facts of our world, where we are, what is possible, what are the kind of positions that can motivate people. Becoming a political candidate, you have to think concretely about all of this. Yeah. And think about what are the real policies that are that are practical in our situation in the US. You got to figure out where are we and where where can we go? What kind of support can one muster? What kind of arguments can be used? And since um, what I think our direction should be is followed, certainly not by the Republican Party and not by the leadership of the Democratic Party as it stands today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm 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 not a darling of the establishment. <laughs> so running running for politics in, in for political office. I, I'm not awash with money or press attention. I'm one of those who remains in the shadows, which, I, which is why it's important for podcast shows like your own allow the electorate to see who the candidates are and what they stand for, even if they don't have enough money to have soundbites on TV, which is what our politics-ticking ends up being reduced to, unfortunately, especially in a COVID-19 pandemic where you know I, I just can't engage in in-person activities to any great deal.
0: Yeah, because
1: you, you mentioned
0: the, um, really the big money, because I saw your, uh, one of your big things in your campaign was campaign reform, like the finance reform. I've been wanting this to get done so long, because at this point, yeah. it's just whoever gives you gives a candidate the most money basically owns a candidate, because you control what they can do and what they will do. And if they don't do it, you won't pay for the next campaign.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's also a, li- a small money side yeah. to this, which, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a state employee, a university employee of, of, at UGA. And if you're an employee, you usually have three strikes against you if you try to run for office. You know, we theoretically, we have the right to run for office. But in reality, it's extremely difficult, I'd say almost impossible, for the overwhelming majority of employees to really run for office in any serious race. Yeah. And keep in mind that employees really make up about 95% of breadwinners. But, you know, first of all, if you're going to run in a statewide office, uh, for statewide office or a national office, you know, you pretty much have to take off from work. To have a serious campaign, but if you're an employee, you take off from work. You have no salary or wages, so you have no income. You lose whatever benefits you have during the you know that are attached to the job, mm-hmm. particularly health care in America, and that means you're not only depriving yourself of health care, but your entire family. Oh wow! And then lastly, you know, when the campaign's over and you don't win, which might occur, of course, your job is not going to be waiting for you in all likelihood case, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm a tenured professor. I'm required by law to go on unpaid leave. So every time I've run for office, the two occasions, I've had no salary. I've had to pay myself for whatever benefits I have, whatever yeah. health care. You know, the inter- state university doesn't chip in at all. But I, I can get my job back. But still, that, that, that doesn't make life easy. And for employees, you know, you, if we really want to give them the right to run for office, one important part of campaign finance reform is that we guarantee anyone who runs for office, who's an employee, Equivalent income while they're on the campaign trail, equivalent to a fair wage. Yeah, we keep we. They have benefits, and frankly, all the benefits in question should be separated from employment anyhow. If, for example, healthcare is attached to employment, it's bad for business and it's bad for for everyone else. If you lose your job, you lose your healthcare. Yeah, or you find you have to pay for insurance on your own, but you have no income now, mm-hmm. um, and business has to support the expense of paying in to healthcare plans, which they don't in other countries. That really screwed our auto industry back when they were up against Japan and, and, and West Germany, the 60s, 70s and the like. We need also to guarantee people a return to their job when the campaign's over. Then people, 95% of Americans would have a chance to run for office. Right now, who runs for office? It's, only- it's no accident that the people in Congress are all millionaires by and large. <laughs> they're retired, they're rich, Kelly Leftler, for example, or, they're like lawyers, doctors. They're these professionals who can continue earning income while they're on the campaign trail that, or return to work afterwards. But employees are not in that situation.
0: I never thought of it like that because you brought great points. Because to the average person, you can't just leave because if you leave, your job's going to be filled by somebody else. And now you're screwed if you lose.
1: Exactly. I think there's another side, you know, we don't think about in terms of campaigning. And I really learned this when I ran for Congress. Yeah. In the House of Representatives in the 10th District. Where ultimately, I think that I... I lost in a way I wasn't expecting because the voters, I'd say in large majority knew absolutely nothing about the candidates when they came to the polls. And that's particularly true when you're running in a district that's not in a metro area because the metro area news, they don't cover races outside the metro area unless it's statewide news. And then they don't cover me because I'm not an establishment candidate. But uh, you don't have the resources to get out to them. And the newspapers are, are sort of disappearing to a large degree. People don't have broadband, don't get on the internet in many areas. Radio hardly does any kind of serious news reporting. So there's this media desert. And, you know, you know, we talk a lot about voter suppression, which is a real problem. But even if you can overcome voter suppression, if voters can't know about who the candidates are, what they stand for, you know, the right to vote is, is empty. Absolutely. And that's, and that's a big part of campaign finance reform, ensuring that every candidate has the resources to make their existence known, have their platform up front to the entire electorate.
0: So is that kind of a reason, because I saw you're posting stuff on YouTube as well. Is that kind of why you're kind of go more on the social media realm?
1: I don't have the resources to buy TV ads. Yeah. Or to buy advertisements in, in like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, let's say, or the New York Times or whatever else. So social media is, well, it's not as free as it used to be, but it's freer, freer yeah. than these other things. Yeah. But there is a limitation because a lot of voters don't have broadband or the means to, to get on online. So and, it's not free.
0: Is that a big problem? Because I live in more of the metro area where we have the broadband. How big of an issue is, like, rural broadband? I don't think that gets talked about enough. Yeah.
1: Well, look, first of all, in cities, I mean, I mean, let's face it, America is the one affluent country that tolerates mass poverty. And you find it in cities and everywhere else. Yeah. And if you're poor, even if there's broadband in your locality, you can't afford to, to pay for it, let alone to buy computers and everything else or to have a smartphone, et cetera, right? So that's a big issue. You don't have the money. Secondly, when you do go out to other areas, and I, I saw this when I went out in the 10th district, which has 25 counties, most of which are pretty rural, there isn't broadband in many of them. It's literally not there. I mean, that's why if we have a, a federal job guarantee, which is the core of my platform, which would put anyone to work who wants a job, and doing the things a market is not taken care of, one big task to be done is to have broadband everywhere for everyone. I mean, think of it now under a pandemic. If you don't have broadband, you can't work remotely, you can't, your kids can't study remotely, you can't order anything remotely, you know, you're, really, you're really stuck. It's, it's a matter of life and death now. It's, it's more and more a matter of any kind of opportunity because now you, know, you really need to get online to do a lot of things.
0: Just about everything is online. If you can't get online, you're, you're really screwed.
1: Yeah, but that's true. Because they're poor and because they live in areas where there's no broadband. We got to do something about it.
0: And then you brought up your um, the guaranteed jobs thing. That got me really interested because I got whoever did your campaign ad, that was a phenomenal work. I love that campaign. Yeah. Ad. I thought that was genius. Yeah. But you were bringing up the kind of social contract with, you know, MLK and the jobs and everything. I was just yeah. curious about really two things. The first thing was Booker T. Washington kind of had that same thing where it's like economic freedom would lead to political freedom. So I was just curious if Booker T. Washington influenced on you at all or anything.
1: Well, you know, think of the position that Booker T. Washington was in. You know, he was living at the height of Jim Crow. Yeah. Where African, and he was, of course, in the South, where most African-Americans were in his day. And, you know, they, you didn't have a huge migration out of the South to escape basically white supremacist terror. But he was living under those conditions where African-Americans had been completely deprived of political freedom. They couldn't vote, they couldn't run for office. And the other thing that goes along with it is, you know, in our nation, jurors are selected by voting rolls. So that meant when African-Americans were not allowed to vote, juries were all white. And that meant that racism you know, could reign supreme inside jury rooms, pretty much. So he was in a position where there simply was no possibility of using the political sphere to achieve liberation, but you had the economy, so yeah. you could work with that. But now you can sort of think of the reverse, you know, think of the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement succeeded in using politics to outlaw racial discrimination, but it did not provide economic emancipation. And if you go back and look at pictures of the March on Washington, there was a sign that proliferated. And you don't see this kind of sign at Black Lives marches today. Yeah. But what it said was civil rights plus full employment equals freedom. And it was a recognition, uh, to quote Martin Luther King in a, in a statement that you rarely hear, if you have neither jobs nor income, you have neither life, liberty, nor the opportunity to pursue happiness. Right? I mean, if you're broke, what can you do? Nothing. What can you really do, right? Nothing. So that's why it's a key to give people that real ground zero of economic independence and security which is to have a job at a fair wage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, you know, there's this counter fantasy that everyone can be an entrepreneur, <laughs> right? Or another, another version of it is that the economy is really made up of small businesses. But, you know, markets don't allow that to be possible because competition requires firms to grow and consolidate to be competitive. You need more and more capital, have more efficient production and marketing apparatuses. You have to develop new products, do R&D, You know, it's no accident that it's, you know, the big companies that are dominant. And that also means that the vast majority of people are employees of a far fewer number of of employers. So the relationship between employee and employer is the main relationship in any market economy. All of us, once slavery is abolished, own our own body, which means, let's say you want to become an entrepreneur, you try it out and you fail. What you're left with, is you own your ability to work for someone else, your labor power, mm-hmm. but you need a job. No good if no one wants to employ you. Yes. And that's the, and that's, that's the inevitable case in markets. There's never full employment. There's always over capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, firms are going in and out of business. Things are changing in terms of what products are selling or not selling. You know, There are always people who are going to find themselves jobless. But we don't have to have unemployment. You know, government can step in and offer people a job at a fair wage. And that's really like, that's game changing. That's really game changing. Particularly for groups that have suffered higher rates of unemployment and poverty wages, which in, in much of the country are African-Americans. Elsewhere, it may be Native Americans, Hispanics, whatever.
0: I got two questions, because you, you, you spurred my interest about two things. So yeah. we're talking about the guaranteed jobs thing. I, I want to know your opinion on uh, universal basic income. Do you think that would be better than a job guarantee? Or do you think we should just stick to the job guarantee thing?
1: Yeah. Now, first of all, there's some people who want to say that Yang is among them. A lot of people in the high tech want to say that, look, automation is going to be taking over more and more jobs. And that's true. That's that's no doubt that's true. I mean, it's already happened in agriculture. I mean, mechanization agriculture has reduced employment so that now only 1.7% of Americans earn a living off of agriculture. Manufacturing, same thing has happened. You know, the amount of workers in manufacturing has plummeted, not so much because of outsourcing. That accounts for maybe 15% of the drop in manufacturing employment. It's automation, Mm -hmm. which accounts for the rest. And it's gonna begin to apply to service industry. But there are always gonna be jobs, such as what you do, such as what I do, that require a human touch. Yes. And frankly, that's what we should be doing as human beings. Why should we be doing things that can be done by a machine? that's faster and stronger than we are. But there is, there is employment. But you know, the UBI people wanna say, well, you know, they're not gonna be jobs for people. I don't think that's true. But secondly, they think that a basic income is gonna be liberating. Now they say it's basic and most proposals say it's like $1,000 a month. Now, $1,000 a month is a real poverty income. No one in America can live on $1,000 a month. Uh, e- even Fox News in the Atlanta area just recently said, you need more than $19 an hour to live, uh, mm-hmm. that comes to about $3,300 a month. Now, so what happens if you have UBI? Basically everyone gets it and it has to be low because it has to be supported by some people who work yeah. and produce wealth. So you have a, a society divided into two classes. Those who just live on UBI, who basically live in dire poverty, who have this kind of premature retirement where they have no resources to do much of anything but sit at home and live very frugally.
0: Mm-hmm. Then
1: you have the rest who get UBI and on top of it, they also have an income from work. You know, it's a very unfair situation. And, and what happened in England in the 18th century, you had a movement like UBI. You know, the Industrial Revolution was just getting started. The peasantry was being, you know, thrown off their land. And there was this idea, everyone should have a kind of basic income that would be enough for them to buy bread to live on. So what did employers do? Well, they realized since everyone was getting a certain basic income, they didn't need to pay people as much as they were paying. They sh- would lower their their wages they were paying to people by the amount of this basic income. So the basic income ended up subsidizing employers. Now, if you think about guaranteed jobs instead, here, everyone who who wants to work will have a job and a job serving the public good, doing all the kinds of things we need, building a new infrastructure that's green energy, broadband, public transportation, fixing up all the decrepit houses. There are 30 million houses that are unsafe to live on, providing all the human services we need, bringing the arts and music and everything else to the public. There are a lot of starving art, artists out there, as we all know. All of this can be done by federal job guarantee. But in addition, it's going to be at a fair income. And a fair income is not a living wage of $15 an hour. That also, that's much, much better than UBI. But it's still a poverty wage. Mm-hmm. You cannot live in a, anywhere in America on $15 an hour. What we need is a fair minimum wage. And according to all the figures, you need at least $20 an hour. And there should be two things associated with it. It should, it should keep pace with inflation, right? Because if prices rise, it's not going to be enough. Yes. But it also should keep pace with the rising wealth and productivity of the nation so that we all boats rise. Because what's happened in America since 1970 is wages have stagnated. They've stopped growing in real terms. The economy has grown not as much as before, but it's more than doubled in size. All of that extra wealth has gone not to wage earners, but to the top. So wage earners, a portion of our national income that goes to wages is lower now than ever before. And as a result, we have growing inequality, which is bad for our families and our welfare and bad for democracy. So instead of UBI, think of this. We have guaranteed jobs. We wipe out unemployment. We also have a new national federal minimum wage that's fair. We wipe out poverty income. And we also give the same income to people who cannot work, people who are disabled, people who are retirees. So then instead of a UBI of $1,000 a month, Everyone gets at least $41,600, which is what a fair minimum wage is. And we can definitely afford it. I mean, the facts are our national income before the pandemic was almost $19 trillion. There are a little over 160 million people who actually earn a living. Do the math, the average income is $115,000 or so. But only 8% of Americans make $100,000 or more. Oh, yeah. So okay. we can raise the bottom. A lot more than $41,600. I, I say $20 an hour because I'm dealing with a nation that is greedy and callous. We could do a lot better than this, but let's start here at least. Speaking of the, um,
0: I saw when you, on your thing for taxation, I agreed with it. Stop doing trickle, trickle down economics, start doing like trickle up economics where shifting you know, excess funds or stuff to help the bottom people rather than just giving tax cuts for the very rich. It's almost like the, um, in 2008, when all the big banks crashed, and instead of giving the money, I would have just said, why don't you just give the money to the actual homeowners, like the people who yeah. needed it? Instead, they just gave it to the big banks. I'm like, yeah. what? And this was, under,
1: this was under Obama. Yeah. And the people who lost their homes more than any other group were African-Americans, who had been lured into, this, into these phony, predatory uh, home loans, mm-hmm. where the, the banks knew that people weren't going to be able to pay and they were going to lose their homes eventually. And Obama and the Democratic Congress, they didn't bail out the homeowners. They bailed out the banks. Yeah, And that was the largest destruction of property among Black Americans ever. We don't want to do that again.
0: Even like the, the stuff now where we're giving it to the airlines, I'm like, why, why don't we just give it to the actual workers instead of the actual no. companies? I don't get that. Yeah, no.
1: No, exactly. They've done that in other countries. They've kept everyone on payroll. I mean, that, that sort of allows everyone to really take the precautions they need. If you don't do that, then people are desperate to get back to work and they're willing right. to do it even when it's unsafe. And that's where we are. We've reopened and we haven't been able to stop the pandemic because we didn't do it safely. We didn't keep people afloat.
0: So this is uh, going back, cause I, I read on your website, that your grandparents were immigrants yeah. here. So yeah. I, I, that got me curious to just really, how has immigration, the stance or like the policy towards immigration changed from when your grandparents came over to yeah. modern day America now?
1: Well, you know, for a long time in, in America, we had open borders. You know, you didn't come here with a visa. You just came. And uh, and for about 100 year, years, it was completely unregulated. Anyone could walk in and they, they would be part of the country. However, they, they couldn't achieve citizenship. You had very strict naturalization laws, which were very racist to begin with. Then later, they introduced restrictions on immigration, often rather racist in character. They wanted to Sort of maintain the Anglo-Saxon majority of the nation and restricted other groups uh, very drastically. That finally was changed in the 60s under LBJ, un- under whom a lot of things changed, um, and sort of changed the complexion, literally, of who was immigrating into this country. Where now most recently it was like 7% of people from Europe, 93% from elsewhere in the world. Now I think you know there is this kind of story you always hear that uh, you know, immigrants and undocumented people do jobs that Americans don't want to do. Now I think that's not entirely true. Now, it may be that I don't want to work as a gardener. I don't want to do manual labor. Yeah. And a lot of other people in my position don't want to. But all the jobs that unskilled, untrained immigrants are doing and undocumented people were done by people who are not immigrant, or at least had immigrated earlier in they with their descendants. Yeah. And basically what happened? Well, employers recognized that they could take advantage of immigrants especially if we allowed them to come in illegally and kept them in this legal netherworld where they're scared of blowing the whistle on any injustice they receive. So they replaced their workers. And in a place like Athens, Georgia, you have, for example, all of these chicken processing plants on the outskirts of town. It used to be African-Americans were employed in these places. Then they were replaced by largely Hispanic immigrants. Then when those immigrants began being terrorized by Trump's policies, many of them fled the area because they were wary of being deported. African-Americans returned to those jobs. I mean, there are a lot of jobs where, you know, people who are here, who are not doing well, are finding that immigration and undocumented workers have, in a sense, impaired their living standards to some degree.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and I think you find the same thing happening in many every other developed nation, like in Europe, which are being inundated by refugees. Some of them are you know trying to escape from war in the Middle East, um, others are just facing the results of climate change, which is devastating North Africa and many other places. But you have people in those countries who are worried about job losses. And that has allowed the rise of something like Trump, you know, these anti-democratic nationalists, these fascists who are, you know, demonizing immigrants and the like as a threat to the economic welfare of the people in, in, in the country. Well, I think we remove that fear and the possibility of villainizing minorities and immigrants by having a federal job guarantee mm-hmm. at fair wages and also having, I think, the empowerment of workers we need. Because then no one's livelihood will be jeopardized by immigration or by giving legal status to the undocumented. And I think that's part of the deal that we have to present if we're going to have comprehensive immigration reform. We have to do it in a way where everyone benefits from it. And ultimately, as a nation, I mean, look, I um. When I was born, this country had 150 million people. Uh, Great Britain at the time had a little over 50 million. Now here we are, we have like 330 million people. Great Britain has like 65 million. We are, let's say, a great power, at least in terms of strength and everything else. If we really aspire to be a just power, we want to maintain our influence in the world. The only way we can do that is if we continue to grow. We continue to have immigrants because our, our rate of reproduction like every other affluent nation, is dropping below the level needed to sustain ourselves. And you know, I think immigration is, is, is important. And you know, look, we are a nation of involuntary immigrants, slaves from Africa, and then voluntary immigrants. Together, that has transformed this country mm-hmm. you know, into, into a nation with, with an explosion of human capital, which is a real basis of, of whatever we amount to. We have to recognize that's part of who we are. And if we, if we really want to be great in a good sense, and have an impact upon the world. First of all, we've got to be righteous. We've got to fulfill all our, all our rights, but we're also gonna to have to grow. I mean, think of what's gonna happen when China and India achieve living standards similar to our own. You know, They have four to five times each, as many people as we do. If they can become as affluent as we are, they're gonna dwarf us entirely. They're gonna have five times as much wealth. They can fund militaries five times as powerful. They can do R&D research on a much greater scale than we. Now, do we want a world dominated by a one party dictatorship like in China? India has their own version of Trump and Modi, who's pushing a Hindu nationalism and undermining the democratic institutions of India. And what kind of world do we want to be in? Do we want an America that is democratic, that that does stand up for the rights of everyone to maintain its place as a beacon of freedom that has an impact upon the world or not? And I think immigration is, is, is connected to that.
0: Thank you for listening to the Casual Journey Podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe.